Welcome to the Nature of Mind podcast. Our mind is our most valuable asset and most dangerous possession. It can be amazingly creative or terrifyingly destructive. The Nature of Mind project invites you to learn from thinkers in psychology, neuroscience, philosophy and Buddhism. Learn more at natureofmind.net. We hope you enjoy this episode. So hi, uh, my name's Viria Deva and I'm here uh, with Bernardo Castrop, Dr. Bernardo Castrop. And we're here as part of the Nature of Mind project. And this is a project bringing together scientists, neuroscientists, physicists, philosophers to think about what the mind is, uh, what the mind really is. And I'm very delighted to be able to welcome uh, Dr. Castro Bernardo, if I may call you Bernardo. Sure, you should. All this doctor um, business. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay, I'll drop. I'll drop the doctor. Um, so Bernardo has uh, two PhDs: one in philosophy, particularly the philosophy of mind, and also a PhD in computer engineering, particularly artificial intelligence and worked at the European Organization for Nuclear Research, which is CERN, uh, and also at the the famous Philips Research Laboratory. And he's now, as I understand it, mainly dedicated to bringing uh, some of his big philosophical ideas out into the world, particularly the the idea, the model of analytical idealism. So I'm really, really pleased you could join us today, Bernardo. I've been, I found it such a, an exciting journey exploring your work these last few months in preparation for the interview. Pleasure to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much. So I'm going to start with the big, the big question, which is what is idealism? What is this big idea, analytical idealism? It's the notion that reality is essentially mental, that it's made of mental processes. Now, not your mental processes alone or my mental processes alone. Idealism recognizes that there is an objective world outside our individual minds, but it infers that that objective world is itself made of transpersonal mental processes, which present themselves to our observation in the form we call perception. And of course, perception is eminently qualitative. It is mental. It entails colors, flavors, smells, and these are mental properties. Uh, And the, the notion of analytic idealism is that these qualities on the screen of perception are inner representations of mental processes that are out there, natural mental processes out there which we have no access to from a first-person perspective, but which we get a representation of in the form of the physical world we see. Okay, so the idea is that although we tend to think and we're we're brought up in our culture to think that somehow there's a world out there that's sort of propping up our perceptions, that's kind of behind our ordinary perceptions, actually that's a kind of mistake all there is is perception although maybe you could help me help clarify what's the difference between it's all in my head and idealism as you propose it so we idealism does acknowledge that there is a world out there what it denies is that such a world out there is essentially different from mentation that it is made of matter in the sense strictly defined under metaphysical materialism, which is something that is fully described in terms of quantities alone 
and has no inherent qualities. In other words, under materialism, the world out there is such that there is nothing it is like to be the world out there. Uh, under idealism, there is still a world out there, but there is also something it is like to be the world out there. Uh, and we perceive these mental processes out there in the form that we call the physical world. But there is still an objective world out there. It's just mental and not physical in the way that it is defined under physicalism or materialism. Okay. Okay. So it's like, usually we think that there's life and there are beings who are conscious. And then there's us maybe who are the most conscious beings. Uh, and all the life, all the kind of subjectivity, the emotions, the love, the hate, and so on, it, it just happens in here, happens in within our nervous systems. And everything else is just dead matter. That's kind of, and you're challenging that and saying that's, that's not the case. Everything is made of the same kind of stuff. It's all made of subjectivity, but we have a particular viewpoint on that. Is that, is that kind of what it's, that's precisely, what it's saying? That's precisely correct. So essentially... It is uh, materialism as a metaphysics that says that the world you experience around you, this world made of colors and flavors and sounds, materialism says this world is actually inside your head alone because it's your brain that is supposed to somehow generate the colors and the melodies and the flavors and the, the smells. Uh, because these are qualities and under materialism, qualities are epiphenomenal, they are secondary. They are byproducts of brain activity. So under materialism, the world of qualities that you experience around you is supposed to be inside your skull. And the world that is really out there is purely ab abstract. And you cannot visualize it because it's supposed to be devoid of qualities. Now, under idealism, uh, the world that is really out there is also qualitative. Uh, it is also made of mental processes, but not individuated mental processes, not personal mental processes, just mental processes at large out there, natural mental processes that unfold uh, in, the, in the broader field of nature as a whole, in which our perception has evolved to collect information about in the form that we call perception. Uh, but the perceived world is just a representation, an appearance of what is in and of itself uh, uh, transpersonal mental processes. Okay. I think I'm going to try and ask you to unpack some of these ideas later. Um, some of these ideas are going to be very new for, for our, our viewers. Um, but somehow I, I, what, what it sounds like you're getting at is that we think that mind is just restricted to here. Um, but actually what's going on is that there are all kinds of processes that, that they look like objectivity to us from our perspective, but actually they're just different modes of, uh, of subjectivity. They're just different modes of subjectivity. And what looks like an external world that's completely different to us is just a different kind of subjectivity operating in a, in a different way. Correct. And one way to think about it is the following. From my subjective perspective your thoughts are entirely objective because I have no control over them and your thoughts don't care about my opinions, my dispositions, my wishes, my fantasies. So from my perspective, what is essentially your subjectivity is objective to me. Mm -hmm. Another thing to keep in mind is that uh, we are very used 
to the notion that there are mental processes out there which are not ours. Other people's mental processes, um, your cats or dogs' mental processes, um, they are out there from your point of view. You do not have direct access to them. From your point of view, they are objective. Now, what idealism does is to call for the same exercise when it comes to the inanimate world as well. The inanimate world, from your point of view, is objective to you, but it is subjective from its own point of view. The thoughts of nature, so to say, are objective to you. They don't care what you think, feel, wish, or fantasize. They are what they are because nature is what it is. Um, but from the point of view of nature itself, uh, uh, they are subjective. They are subjective mm -hmm. mental processes, which are probably instinctive or spontaneous since the behavior of nature is so predictable through the laws of physics. So these mental processes out there are not human-like in the sense mm -hmm. that they do not necessarily entail the, the high-level mental functions that you and I have, like self-awareness, the ability to reflect, the ability to introspect explicitly and examine our own mental contents, which is called metacognition. They are probably instinctive, very spontaneous, simple mental processes that unfold in very regular ways uh, and which we then represent in our internal dashboard of sensors uh, as the world of perception, as the colors, sounds, flavors and melodies around us. Hmm. So um, maybe we can pause this thread here because you know, I've got lots of questions to ask you and to, that I think people want to know about how how we can kind of relate to this, how we can relate to these ideas, which are so different to the way we're brought up to think. But maybe I'd like to move on to something a bit more personal and just ask you, you know, you, you started out as a, as, a, as a physicist, as a computer scientist, and, and then working in physics. And presumably you were brought up, like all of us, thinking that there's a material world really out there. Um, and you've completely reversed your position. How did that happen? What, what's the story there? <laughs> well, as you said, I started out in the interface between physics or, or high energy particle physics and, and computer engineering. I specialized in computer science because I realized that um, to do experiments in physics, uh, you have to be a computer engineer <laughs> and not a physicist. I mean, it's engineers that developed the Atlas detector and the data acquisition system of the Atlas detector, the stuff that eventually found the famous Higgs boson. Um, so I was in that interface from, I don't know, 19 to 24 years old or so. Mm -hmm. And I was a materialist by default in the sense that I, I was a materialist because everybody around me was a materialist, not because I thought it through and arrived at an informed opinion. I just sort of absorbed it by osmosis. But um, still at CERN, I was working on artificial neuronal networks. Uh, which back in the 90s were you know, a lot more mysterious than they are today. And uh, I was developing an alternative to the data acquisition systems we were using, uh, an alternative based on artificial neuronal networks, artificial intelligence. Eventually that was not used. We used our classical approach because we didn't understand those neuronal networks very well, so we didn't dare. Um, but of course, after you've done some of these AI systems, you ask yourself, well, I made something in silicon that is intelligent. What does it take to turn it into a conscious thing as well? 
to have its intelligence be accompanied by experience. And I struggled with that question for a couple of years until I realized that whatever I changed in the structure and function of a silicon computer, it had no bearing on the question of experience. Uh, it only changed structure and function. I had no reason to think that it increased or reduced my chances of having that structure and function be conscious. Um, and, and that was a hint that uh, I was making some wrong assumptions because I was facing an internal contradiction of my way of thinking. And when you face an internal contradiction, when your thinking leads you to a dead end, you ought to stop, now take account of the situation, retrace your steps back and realize where you took a wrong turn. And I realized that my wrong turn was the assumption that consciousness is something that can be created out of structure and function in the first place. And I realized that structure and function themselves exist only in consciousness as far as I can know. And that mm -hmm. everything else was pure theoretical abstraction and not grounded in any empirical experience and, and not even grounded in theory because the theoretical underpinning of materialism is inexistent. Uh, we do not have even a coherent hypothesis about how the brain could possibly generate the qualities of experience. And, so can, um, I, can I check I've understood that? Just yeah. the, Is it that, so you were doing these experiments with neural networks and you were changing their structure and function and you realized that according to our the kind of default understanding of the brain you had, which is just somehow the structure and function of neurons, the, the little firing bits that, that, make, that supposedly make consciousness according to materialism, um, uh, any changes in those weren't going to get you any closer to creating a conscious thing. Correct. I had uh, no reason to think that it would get me any closer. I see. So there was no reason to think that would get you any closer. And that then challenged this idea that somehow the particular neural structure of our brains leads to consciousness. Yes, because it, the... it shows you that at some point you took a wrong turn in your thinking. Because if you're facing an incommensurability it means that you've departed from reason at some point. Yeah, yeah. And, and the way this has been technically framed, the issue I was facing uh, has been technically framed by philosopher David Chalmers. And he mm. framed it in the following way. There is nothing about uh, physical parameters, parameters of structure and function, in mm. terms of which we could deduce the qualities of experience, not mm. even in principle. In mm. other words, if I connected my neuro, the, neurons, the neurons in my neural network in, in according to plan A uh, um, or connected my neural networks, uh, network according to plan B, I had no reason to think that plan A was uh, the, the experience of heat and plan B the experience of cold. It could just as well be the other way around. I had no way to deduce the qualities of experience from structure and function, which tells us that, okay, something went wrong at some point. And what went wrong is that physicality, we created the notion of something physical based on physical parameters like weight, mass, charge, spin, momentum, frequency, amplitude. And, but in the beginning, those numbers, physical parameters, they were descriptions of the world of qualities we see around us. We use those numbers to describe qualities, like a piece of luggage that weighs 50 kilos will feel heavier than a piece of luggage that weighs 5 kilos. 
So five or 50 kilograms is a description uh, of a certain perceptual quality, how heavy it feels. The same goes for the wavelength of light. It's a description of the colors, the qualities we perceive. So numbers were descriptions, but at some point something went very wrong in the chain of thinking of Western thought. And we decided that the description preceded the thing described. It's like saying that the map precedes the territory, that the map generates the territory as opposed to being a description of the territory. And then we said, what really exists is mass, weight, charge, spin, frequency, amplitude. And the qualities are somehow generated by our, bra by our, our brain in a mysterious way that nobody can even begin to articulate with any clarity, explicitness, or coherence. That was a mistake. We tried to replace the territory with the map. We failed, and then we called it a problem, the hard problem of consciousness. And now we promise ourselves that if we make a better map, we will eventually be able to pull the territory out of the map. Of course, that's never going to work. It's an internal contradiction in the way we are thinking about reality. And that was the question I was going to ask, because, you know, some people watching might say, you know, at this po point in your career, you got to this place where you thought there's no way changing around these neural networks in any particular way is going to, I've got no reason to think that's going to lead to consciousness, me, me somehow generating consciousness. Um, but people might say, oh, we, we just don't know enough about neural networks yet. Uh, that's the problem. If we knew enough about neural networks, we'd be able to explain how this particular arrangement of cells leads to this magnificent, multicolor, emotional world that we live in. I mean, how did you know that wasn't the right path at that point? This is such a, a loose, promissory excuse for someone who is just not emotionally ready to depart with one's metaphysical commitments. Um, I could say that um, maybe one day, if we understand the map very well, we will be able to pull the Netherlands out of the map of the Netherlands. Uh, because, you know, we don't know everything about the map yet, right? So who knows? Maybe one day we'll make a better map and we will pull the Netherlands out of the map. It's exactly the same that's going on right now. So if you see things with clarity, you understand that this promissory note that one day we will understand enough and create consciousness out of material structure and function, uh, it's silly. It's a, a very silly move, and it only reflects a arbitrary metaphysical commitment, not an, an honest and rational approach to the problems at hand. Mm. I mean, you must have, just thinking back to my days, you know, I mentioned to you in my email, I used to be uh, part of academic philosophy of science, uh, I was really in that world and there were these debates, there were these debates in philo academic philosophy of science between realism and anti-realism about physical stuff. And hopefully we'll bring this towards Buddhism at some point. I'll, I'll see if I can do that. But anyway, let's stay in philosophy of science for now. And, um, you know, when I was studying, you know, there were these debates and there were anti-realists who, who claimed that all science is doing, all science is doing is just um, we're recording patterns that we, we see in the world. We're noticing patterns. And then we're making predictions on the basis of these patterns. It's, as you say, it's a map. We're making maps of reality. Uh, um, but we don't know what the reality is. There's just this incredible influx of phenomena that we're perceiving. And then we, we notice regularities. 
And how did you know, how, what, what instinct drove you to say that there was no more than that? We had no reason to think there's more than just maps here. Because so many people don't, so many scientists don't have that instinct. What do you think was different about you? I paid attention to the history of science. Maybe that's, <laughs> that's mm. the difference. Look, um, theoretical entities in physics are convenient fictions in the sense that they give us a way to think about the world. But it, what we think, the way we think, is not necessarily the world. It's just an operationally useful way to think about the world. And these convenient fictions, they change over time. They have always changed. When Newton proposed that uh, there was this magical, invisible force acting instantaneously at a distance to pull the apple down to the ground or to keep the moon in its orbit, which was gravity, this instantaneous invisible force that acts at a distance. It took the French 50 years to stop laughing of Newton's convenient fiction because it was just magical woo-woo back in the 17th century. Things that didn't contact, couldn't causally interact, interact with one another. Uh, but that convenient fiction, this invisible instantaneous force of gravity, allowed us to put a man on the moon and, and, and land a, um, a spaceship on a comet um, or an asteroid. Uh, um, but then Einstein came along and he said, no, Newton's convenient fiction is no longer convenient because it doesn't help us predict the orbit of Mercury with accuracy and it doesn't help us understand why we can see stars that are actually behind the sun. Um, so he came up with another convenient fiction, which is that the very, the very fabric of space-time twists and bends and, and is malleable and can be bent by mass. Um, that's also a convenient fiction. And why is it a fiction? Because nature behaves as though the fabric of space-time could be twisted and bent. So convenient fictions are stories um, that capture nature's behavior. In other words, nature behaves as though those theoretical entities were true. And that's all we need to predict nature's behavior and do science and technology uh, successfully. We only need convenient fictions. Um, and we will always replace convenient fictions when they are no longer convenient, when we need another convenient mm -hmm. fiction. That's what we, we have to keep in mind. These are models that allow us to make predictions. They are not necessarily reality. They have never been literally true. Why would they be now? Uh, they mm -hmm. are just convenient fictions. What reality really is, is, is not um, accessible to us. So even then, you were kind of aware from knowing your history of science as you did, that there have been a series of maps for reality and they keep changing. They yep. keep on changing when we can't explain all the phenomena that we want to be able to explain in a new map. But I, that, I wonder one also... Thing. That, that, sorry, that was on. one thing, but the, 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 there was another, which is much closer to lived experience. We have this naive notion called physical realism, this naive notion that the world as we see, that the, the forms of the objects and things we see around us, they are the forms of the world as it is in itself. In other words, we think that perception is a transparent uh, window into the world as it actually is. 
but that's absolutely nonsensical. That would basically mean that we cannot control our internal entropy. In other, in other words, we, we would die just by looking at the world. Um, it, it's certainly not what evolution would have favored. Evolution favors survival, uh, not uh, uh, the truth of what you see. Um, the world as it actually is, uh, is almost certainly not at all like what is on the screen of perception in the same way that the sky outside an airplane doesn't look at all like the airplane's dashboard. But the dashboard presents accurate information about the world outside. So if a pilot didn't have a transparent window to see the sky outside, he could still fly safely by instruments alone. But the world doesn't look like an instrument panel. The instrument panel is just a way to convey accurate information about the world. That's what perception is. Perception is an instrument panel. It displays information that comes from our sensors, our retinas, eardrums, and so forth. Um, and we are like pilots who were born inside an airplane cockpit without windows. All we have is the dashboard. So what we do, we think the dashboard is the world. In other words, we think the world is physical which is absolutely nonsensical. Mm. It's absurd. Physicality is the dashboard representation of the world. I remember that metaphor. It's a really good metaphor in, the, in your book on materialism, uh, why materialism is baloney. Oh, I meant to list all of the books you've written at the beginning. I'll say some <laughs> okay. at the end. They're very, they're very, very good, very exciting books. Um, one of the metaphor you use was um, of its like Somewhat, I think it's like you're in a, a house and there's a tiny chink of light through the window and you can see just a tiny sliver of the world and it's as if you're trying to come, you're trying to come up with or you think that you know the whole of reality through this tiny little chink in That's the wall. That's causality. That's the notion of causality. Uh, because in, what is causality? Where does it come from? It comes from the ordering, ordering of events in nature as we observe them. So if A happens and then B follows, and that's all the time the way nature behaves, first A happens and then B follows, we say A is the cause, B is the effect. Um, but if you pretend, and that's, that metaphor is not mine, I think it's Alan Watts' metaphor. If you're sitting in front of a fence and there is only a slit on the fence that allows you to see the other side, and you see a cat passing on the other side, you first see the cat's head and then you see the cat's tail after a little while. And then the cat turns around, comes again, and then again, first you see the head and then you see the tail. So you would tell yourself the head causes the tail because the, the tail follows the head every time. But you only say that because you're limited to a slit. If you could see the whole pattern, the cat, there is no causality. So that, that's a different argument. That was an argument for causality not being fundamental. Yeah. Causality is a category of our cognition, like Kant and Schopenhauer already said over 200 years ago, and we forgot since then. Causality is not inherent in nature. Causality is an artifact of our limited cognition because we see the world through a slit. We call it time. Uh, we, we fail to see the whole pattern. If we saw the whole pattern, we would never talk in terms of cause and effect. Mm. I'd like to pick that up again, if I can. I want to somehow steer us towards, I'd really like at some point you to tell us about the egoic loop, the metaphor of the egoic loop, because I, I think it's a really powerful way of expressing your ideas. And also I think there's some interesting overlaps with Buddhist thought there that we could talk about. But before that, just to pick up your personal story again, I mean, something I was wondering about was 
in, in um, more than allegory, you talk very personally, and in, in Dreamed Up Reality, uh, two of your books, you talk very personally about quite significant, you could call them spiritual or transcendent experiences that you've had yourself. And I just wondered if these also had a part to play or if, if it was that you decided materialism had to be wrong first and then you explored the possibilities for transcendent experience. Yes, uh, the latter. Okay, um, I, could I, you I, tell us a bit about how that happened? Well, I, I, I came at my fundamental conclusions purely from reasoning and evidence. Um, evidence has been accumulating foundations of physics for over 40 years now that physical entities do not have standalone existence. And if they don't, then, then they are not the primary layer of reality. Then they are just uh, an image, a representation of something deeper that lies behind the physical. So all of these things and then my thinking about artificial intelligence and how could I turn that into artificial consciousness, just reasoning my way out of the internal contradictions of our worldview is what brought me to idealism, to this notion that everything is actually mental, not my mind alone, but mental in essence, and that solves every problem, resolves all the contradictions and accommodates all the evidence as well. Uh, so that's how I came at it. I didn't come at it at all from spiritual insight. I'm, I'm particularly, I have a particularly hard head. Um, I, I'm not good at the subtleties of spirituality, if you know what I mean. I was not born with uh, that gift, um, which I have come to accept. <laughs> yes, the, these are the cards I have been dealt and I'm okay with them. Um, but of course, once having arrived at this conclusion and being open to them, and I'm talking now about um, dreamed up reality, more than allegory, I can make an observation later about what that actually represents. But uh, once I was already sort of, you know, very open to idealism, um, it was then that I figured I, I have to experiment with altered states of consciousness. And the reason was the following. Under materialism, if experience is generated by the brain, then, then it, it, it's an enclosed system. Uh, there isn't much to explore. It's limited by the brain. Mm. But under idealism, the brain is just the image, the appearance of a certain configuration of consciousness, a dissociative configuration that makes us feel that we are separate from the rest of the world, even though it's only one thing going on. What happens then if that dissociation weakens? N no process in nature is perfect. Rain doesn't precipitate all air hum humidity. Um, uh, combustion or fire doesn't, doesn't burn everything there is to burn. So if we are dissociative processes in the mind of nature, then that dissociation is not perfect either. So what would it feel like if I tried to induce an impairment of dissociation? Mm -hmm. And that's what meditation probably does. That's certainly what psychedelics do, because we know now that psychedelics only reduce brain activity, they don't increase brain activity anywhere in the brain, and, and, and the reductions are massive. It's the best model of death we have is psychedelic usage, because your brain sort of half dies. Um, so I felt I needed to exp experiment with that. It would be irresponsible if, if I'm writing about consciousness to not experiment with that. And I did. And, and and the results were consistent uh, with my views, even though they were so in a way that I could never have imagined before. Mm. What you describe it, particularly in dreamed up reality, is, is really wild, very exciting. <laughs> uh, like some of the experiences Buddhist masters have in, 
in in the depths of meditation maybe we can hear about some of those in a in a moment but um it's hard to know what avenue to explore i mean something i'm kind of concerned to make sure i do here is i'd really because i think unlike people like me like people like me i had as i mentioned to you i had a big transcendental experience and then i changed my worldview it, it wasn't it wasn't the same way around as you i didn't reason myself to idealism i studied philosophy i studied people like hume and i even wrote a lot about bishop barclay who was an idealist but i wasn't convinced by them I just thought, oh, these guys are kind of weird and interesting, but obviously they're wrong. But with you, you were convinced rationally. Uh, and I think that's so valuable for people to hear about um, because mostly people's objections, I think, as you say, materialism, when you really look at it closely, is not very intuitive. It's actually really counterintuitive and strange that there's this whole <laughs> kind of abstract world out there that we can never touch, never see, never taste but somehow it's definitely there and it's propping up all the stuff we can actually see it's very strange but i i think i'd like to hear a bit more maybe about some of the empirical reasons why materialism just doesn't make sense you give a lot of evidence for why materialism doesn't make sense in in why materialism is baloney particularly this area of psychedelic experience and near-death experience i wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that okay first just a quick disclaimer we don't even need to go to empirical evidence to dismiss materialism. It, it's mm. internally contradictory. It yeah. defines matter as that which has nothing to do with qualities and then tries to reduce qualities to matter. Yeah, it doesn't mm. work. It tries to reduce mind to an abstraction of mind, like a dog chasing its own tail. Th that won't work. It faces insoluble problems, like the, the hard problem of consciousness. So we don't need empirical evidence to dismiss materialism because materialism is is the most incoherent and the worst option on the table today. It's downright stupid, if, if I may use the word. And, and it's not even difficult to see it. The difficulty resides in the momentum and the manufactured plausibility that our culture has engendered for it. Uh, if you can really contemplate materialism with a neutral mind and only apply logical, uh, logical reasoning, it's absurd. It's outright stupid. Now, having said that, because our culture has manufactured so much plausibility artificially for materialism, and so many people are emotionally committed to it because of a number of hidden assumptions that they don't examine, let's look at the empirical evidence. In foundations of physics, there, there has been a series of experiments. It's, it's a complex series that has been going on for over 40 years, but the basic is the following. You have two entangled material particles, the basic building blocks of nature, according to materialism. And um, scientist A, let's say Alice, uh, is to make a measurement on particle A. And scientist Bob is to make a measurement on particle B. Now suppose one is in Australia, the other one is in Europe, opposite sides of the world. Now Alice chooses what she wants to measure about particle A in Europe. And at the same time, Bob makes a measurement on particle B. It turns out that what Alice chooses to measure determines what Bob sees when he measures particle B. Um, what this shows us is that the physical properties of the particles are not pre-existing things. Measurement doesn't just reveal the properties the particles already had all along measurement somehow 
creates the physical properties of the particles. That's what the experiment tells us. In other words, physical entities do not have standalone existence. They are representations. They are what happens when you make a measurement. Let's go to the dashboard representation, the dashboard of an airplane. The airplane has sensors measuring uh, air humidity, air speed, all kinds of things are being measured uh, on the world outside the airplane. And those measurements, the results of those measurements are displayed on the dials, on the dashboard, so the pilot can see them. Now, if you are not measuring, if the sensors are not measuring, the dials show nothing, of course. That doesn't mean that there is no world outside. It only means that you're not measuring it. It means that the dashboard is not the world. The dashboard is the result of measurement. That's what the experiments are telling us. What we call the physical world is not the world. It's a representation thereof, which arises when we measure it, when we observe it. It's what the dials show in the dashboard. And then we get all confused with these experiments because we think, well, how come the physical properties are not there before we measure? There has to be a world, right? Yes, of course there has to be a world, and there is a world, but it's not the dashboard. <laughs> the world is what is being measured. If the dashboard shows nothing, it doesn't mean that there is no world, it only means that you aren't measuring. And the world, therefore, is not physical. Physicality is the dashboard representation. Another, other experiments have to do with the neuroscience of consciousness and psychedelics are only one example that show that uh, certain impairments and reductions of brain function lead to vastly enriched and intenser experience which is very hard to reconcile with materialism because under materialism brain activity is experience or generates experience and there is supposed to be nothing to experience that cannot be traced back to brain activity so if your experience is exploding in richness and intensity and you're having one of the most significant experiences of your life that you will never forget, and then you realize that actually your brain has gone to sleep, I mean, it more than has gone to sleep, a sleeping brain is more active than a brain on psychedelics. Um, that's hard to reconcile, but it's not only psychedelics. Um, there is this choking game teenagers play, which can lead to death, Teenagers worldwide have found out that if you partly strangle yourself and you cut blood flow to the brain, um, what looks like uh, from the outside as you having passed out because you become unresponsive, from the inside, it's like a psychedelic trip. So teenagers have figured out that if they partly strangle themselves, they can have a trip without drugs. They go to you know, alternate realities, alien worlds, they experience... You know, trips back to their childhood and, and have enormous insights about the nature of what's going on because they cut blood flow to the head. Well, it's the same kind of thing. Or the study in Italy, studying patients that were undergoing a brain surgery for the removal of tumors, which always causes a little bit of collateral damage in surrounding tissue. And they were evaluated for feelings of self-transcendence before and after surgery. And after surgery, after a little bit of brain damage, their feelings of self-transcendence are significantly increased. And Vietnam War uh, veterans who had um, uh, brain damage, much more susceptible to religious experience than um, average people. I mean, it could go on and on. A study of mediums in Brazil under a brain scanner showing that 
during the trance state, mediums are capable of generating a lot more complex text, even though their brain activity is far reduced, even in the areas related to rational thinking and language processing, which doesn't make any sense. I mean, there are many examples of this. I see. I see. Yeah, yeah. We had actually a, a, a little while ago, we interviewed a researcher into near-death experiences, uh, Penny Sartori, who was telling similar stories about these incredibly complex experiences that patients had had when there was no measurable sign of, of neural activity at all. And so I guess just so I clear I've understood, the reason that means that materialist interpretations of consciousness can't be right is that materialist interpretations of consciousness rely on the idea that experience is generated by the brain. But if there can be all these complex experiences when the brain is basically not doing anything, consciousness can't possibly be generated by the brain. That's one reason why obviously materialism is wrong. It's also wrong because it assumes that physical entities have standalone reality. Now we know that they don't. It's also wrong because it's internally contradictory and, and, and doesn't okay, have explanatory okay. power okay. and all those things. Yeah, uh, but yeah, uh, yeah this, is, this is a reason. Um, the reason I, don't, I usually don't mention NDEs is because there is always the question during the NDE, when did you actually have the experience? Was it when uh, you didn't have a heartbeat or was it afterwards when you get yeah. what we call a metabolic uh, a rebound when your heart starts beating again and suddenly you know your brain kicks in again um, so the, the, that question can always be, be asked but in the I examples see. i mentioned there is no such question because people um, reported psychedelic experiences in a time-stamped way while they were lying in a brain scanner so we know that the experience happened while brain activity was far reduced. The same with the mediums in Brazil. Uh, and when you have brain damage, uh, you know that the, the damage is still there. So whatever experiences or enhanced cognitive skills you have, like people with acquired uh, savant syndrome, we know that there is no issue uh, of timing here. Uh, the brain function is impaired while they are having uh, a tremendously intense transcendent experience. Okay, so there's no way for materialists to wriggle out of, of no, those no, no. <laughs> So I just want to ask a question which might seem very obvious to you. To me, it's in a way, the answer seems obvious, but it, it certainly I've found recently in talking to people, we've been running a series of events here in my local Buddhist center at the Croydon Buddhist Center. And uh, the thing that people keep asking is, well, so maybe I do believe in this material world that it's not that plausible to believe in, but so what? Why is that? Why is that a problem? Is that hurting anyone? What's wrong with that? And what would you say to that? What would you say to those people? It changes everything if you understand what is probably actually going on. Um, for instance, it changes your perspective about death. And that may not be a good change. For me, it's not a good one. I was very comfortable with the materialist notion that at some point you stop suffering because you, there is no subject anymore. There is nobody there to suffer. So there is no suffering. You have to keep in mind that when materialism became mainstream in the late 19th century, this was the greatest psychological appeal because uh, throughout human history, for 99% of human history, our greatest fear, our most overwhelming fear, more overwhelming than any other anxiety, was the fear of the experiential state after death. In Christian language, am I going to go to hell or am I going to go to heaven? Um, and in, in different forms, this has always been our greatest fear. It's the fear that has been used throughout the history to control entire populations, to rule entire countries, entire civilizations. 
Um, and in the late 19th century, we took it off the table. It wasn't there anymore. The psychological payoff of this is tremendous. Um, under idealism, your personal self is a temporary configuration of your consciousness. It's probably not going to be there. Uh, I mean, if your brain activity reducing leads to a totally changed state of consciousness, like a psychedelic trip, imagine when the brain isn't there at all <laughs> anymore. Uh, so, so you tend to, to have a very different experience of things after death, but there will still be a subject. There will still be experiencing, and you don't know what that's going to be like. The might bad be news bad. might be bad or might be great. We don't know. Um, but we no longer have the reason to think that the insights we have accumulated through life at great cost because of great suffering, that those insights are for nothing because they come to an end the moment your consciousness comes to an end. So that is also off the table. Whatever insights you have accumulated at great cost are a eternal contribution to nature. They're never going to disappear because consciousness is not disappearing. It's configuration changes, it's state changes. But whatever insights you have at the moment of death, you are seeding nature with those insights. You're cashing in, you're banking those insights. They will never be lost. And that reinvests life with meaning, even in the face of great suffering. Um, it, uh, it, um, it highlights our kinship with fellow humans and animals. We are all part of one great field of subjectivity. We don't even exist really as independent agents. So the suffering of the pig is my suffering. The suffering of the Ukrainians is my suffering. Everybody's suffering is my suffering. I am invested in humanity throughout history and the whole of it. In the whole of life uh, in, the, in the universe, I am invested in it. And if this conceptual understanding sinks in, it really changes you. It has changed me. Uh, I, I have great difficulty right now with the conflict in Ukraine. And uh, I feel ashamed even to say that because, you know, my psychological suffering is nothing compared to people who are sleeping in, in, in metro stations and having bombs fall on their heads. But um, I, I, I cannot isolate myself from that emotionally. I'm entirely linked into that. It's not something I can shake off anymore. So that changes as well. Our understanding of health changes because now the body doesn't generate the mind. The body is the image of a particular configuration of mind. So bodily health is essentially mental health. Even if it's that part of your mentation that you repress and you have no introspective access to, you don't know what's going on, but it is your mental health. So that means that next to surgery and, and pills, we can also have psychological practice, meditation, prayer, talk therapy, as means to improve our very, very physical, biological health. Um, life is reinvested with meaning because the world now... The physical world we see, it, it's a superficial appearance. It, 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 it's, it's a hint into something that lies behind it. It, it. A hint to the represented as opposed to the representation itself. The world around us is a book to be read, uh, a riddle to be deciphered. Uh, what do these images mean? They are pointing at something beyond themselves. And so now life is invested with this extra dimension of mystery and meaning. And living life is no longer banal. 
uh, it's no longer superficial. It's, it's a great adventure. It's the great adventure of deciphering the book of life, the book of the world. Changes everything. So, I mean, what you're saying kind of implies something about the way most people are currently living. You know, we're, we're living in this world where the only meanings to be had kind of within our own skulls and all that will end when we die. Uh, that could be for the best because who knows what happens next might be bad, but also it means that there's no possibility of our life meaning anything before um, beyond physical death. And I guess it's all, you're also kind of suggesting that the world we're interacting with, our view of the world is very, very impoverished. It's like deep, it's deeply impoverished because we think that we're getting the whole picture and actually we're just staring at the map. We've got the map right in front of our faces yes. and we think that's all there is. And we can't see, we can't see the sky. We can't yeah. see the landscape. Is that, is that kind of what you're getting at? Absolutely. And the psychological yeah. movement behind it is, un, is understandable. And you need yeah. to understand it to understand why materialism has become mainstream. Because on the basis of reason and evidence alone, it's absurd. It's mm. downright stupid. So how come something that is so obviously wrong come to dominate? Yeah, how come? So, so maybe we could get into that. Why is... well? I want to know why that is. And I also want to kind of see what you think, because Buddhism has a kind of theory about why that is. You know, it has its own kind of, as, it, as philosophers would say, it has its own error theory for materialism. Um, but I just wondered, like, you know, you said it sunk in with you. I think some people might be hearing this and thinking, okay, maybe I'm missing something here, but it's not sinking in. How do you get this to sink in? <laughs> It's a very personal process for for everyone. I, I, I can describe to you my own theory of how this whole thing happened. And maybe right. it helps people sort of reconcile themselves with it and allow it to sink in. Materialism started, materialism as a metaphysics, it started together with science around the late 16th, early 17th century. Um, and in the beginning, it was very clear to practitioners, the scholars of the time, the, the proto-scientists, that the numbers of physics were descriptions, not the thing in itself, but mere descriptions. Kilograms was a description of the feeling of weight, not a property of a standalone physical world. That was pretty clear because it was obvious. Everybody's understanding um, before and during the Renaissance was that the world as it is in itself is of the same kind as we are, because we are just part of the world. So if from within we are mental beings, so is the world. And the world presents itself as the matter of the physical universe, just as my inner sorrow presents itself as the matter of my tears and my contorted facial muscles. So the world was of the same kind as us. This was not even something discussed because it, it was obvious. Now, who the hell would think anything else? But then science began, and some scientists were burned at the stake. Uh, Giordano Bruno was burned in the year 1600. Um, so scientists realized that uh, carving out a space for them separate from the church was a matter of survival. Um, so they created this notion that the description actually had real standalone existence. They called it matter, and they told the church, well, the church has the psyche, in other words, the soul, the mind, the, the whole world. And we, we get to have matter, so you don't burn at, this, at the stake. And the church probably thought, 
These guys are nuts. Okay, have your abstract, nonsensical fantasy of matter, and you leave us with the real world. It's fine. Scientists weren't burned at the stake anymore. And they knew that this was happening. Uh, uh, Denis uh, Diderot, one of the two authors of uh, L'Encyclopédie, the founding document of the Enlightenment, he's on record saying materialism doesn't quite work, but we need it uh, in order to combat the church. They knew that. But at some point after the mid-19th century, what psychologists call fluid compensation took place. Fluid compensation is we all need a source of meaning. Usually that's a transcendent source of meaning that comes from religion. It has been the case throughout our history. If you lose that, you need to fluidly compensate and find another source of meaning. And the alternative can be um, a very high self-image. It can be closure. Like the world is crap, but at least I understand why it is crap. It's closure. It's, it's, the, it's the very reason why we have the ritual of burying our dead. They are gone, can't have them back, but we get closure if we bury them. So that's another source of meaning. Contributing to something bigger than yourself, like the great universal project of the scientific endeavor. That's another source of meaning. So intellectual elites have fluidly compensated for the loss of religious uh, sources of meaning, transcendent sources of meaning, by distinguishing themselves from the populace, the populace. Uh, so they consider themselves these special, in, more intelligent human beings who stared the tough, the tough facts in the face and you know, had the courage to avoid gullibility and fantasy and contribute to this great pro project of science that was bigger than themselves. But of course, that came at our cost because they tell us we don't have a source of meaning because we are just normal people. And, and that has been going on now for almost 200 uh, years. And maybe all the meaning we get to have is to be really courageous in the face of this meaninglessness. That's, that's yeah, all we get. It's about reason, ultimately. It's about reason and evidence uh, and, 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 and not about all these psychological dynamics that led people to, one, adopt materialism to get rid of the fear of you know, the experience after the death state, uh, single-handedly getting rid of the biggest fear of humanity throughout history, and then fluidly compensating for the concomitant loss of meaning. So they got rid of a fear. Oh, they lost meaning together with that, the transcendent meaning of your soul continuing forever and therefore nothing being for nothing. They lost that too, but they fluidly compensate mm. by distinguishing themselves and thinking that they, they found closure. Yeah. Uh, but they, they left the rest of us <laughs> Uh, without the source of meaning. And, and at the end, it's not about the psychological dynamics. At the end, it's about what do we have objective reasons to think is, is going on. Mm. And it has nothing to do with all this craziness that happened in the 19th century. Mm. It's interesting you saying that. And I was thinking about this when I was reading your book, when, when I was reading Mater Why Materialism is Baloney. Because... You know, maybe this is a kind of contemporary Western interpretation of that I've laid onto Buddhism. We've laid onto Buddhism, but Buddhism seems to say a lot of old, very ancient Buddhist texts seem to say that this tendency to split off the self and the world, and to think there's a real world out there that's separate from a real self in here, is is very deeply part of human psychology. At least has been since then, uh, if not if not uh, longer since longer ago, and. Um, maybe we can get into, I'd be interested in getting into discussion about the dynamics of that, maybe when we get into the 
egoic loop. But roughly, it's that um, we, when there's certain things that we don't like, we push them away. When there's things that we do like, we, we grab them to ourselves. And gradually, in that way, we construct a sense of a separate me. I'm going to protect this me in here that feels like it's my stuff. And to keep safe, I'm going to push out other stuff. And then we impute, we make an inference that the stuff we label as out there has a separate independent existence. Um, and that's very close to, you know, it's in a way modern materialism seems can, could look like just a kind of really hyped up version of that, not a completely new tendency. I wonder what you, what you think of that. I think there are two issues. Even under idealism, you can separate yourself from the world. Even if you are convinced in, in the very fiber of your being that the world out there is mental, it's still not your mentation. It's still not your feelings. And you may still separate yourself from it. Um, um, and I think uh, that separation, independent of metaphysical position, that separation is indeed deeply ingrained in the human psyche. We tend to separate ourselves from the world, even if we grant that the world is mental, because it's not my mentation. It's somebody else's mentation. It's something else's mentation. And therefore I don't care because I'm not that. Um, so that's one thing and it's deeply ingrained. Materialism goes a step further. What materialism does is the following. Suppose you, you, you're standing uh, on, on a mountain and you can see until the horizon and you know that until the horizon it's the earth and you can't see beyond the horizon but beyond the horizon you know it's just more earth it's not earth that you can see that you can be acquainted with but it's more of the same kind now in our mentation this we, we do the same thing uh, or we we used to do the same thing before materialism uh, until the horizon, it's my mental processes, my feelings, my thoughts. I can see them until the horizon of my personal mind. Beyond that horizon, just like it's more earth, it's more mind. It's not my mind, but it's more mind. Just as beyond the horizon, it's more earth. It's not earth I can see, but it's more earth. It's more of the same kind. Mm, this is all very normal. We all do yeah, that yeah. and we always did that. But materialism makes a peculiar, very strange next step. Materialism does the following. Until the horizon, it's earth. In other words, my mental uh, life. It's all I can be dire directly acquainted with. It's my mental inner life. It's until the horizon. Beyond the horizon, it's not only not my mental inner life. It's not mental anymore. It's something of a different kind. And this is a very, very peculiar step in materialism because, you see, it's very reasonable to say that the world is not my mental processes because fantasize as I will for the world to be different, it doesn't change just because I fantasized it to be different. Mm. The world does what it does regardless of my wishes, fantasies, fears. It doesn't care. Mm. So it's not me. That's, that's understood. The world is not your mind. It's very clear and reasonable. But materialism says that not only is it not my mind, it's not mind. Mm. And that is one completely unnecessary, not justifiable, and leads to all kinds of inner contradictions. I, I, I think I understand, and it's really interesting. It puts a different take on, uh, you know, the, on, hist on religious history, because 
you know, it's tended to be traditional in Buddhism. In the Buddhist tradition, there's a very strong tradition of, of we might call animism, of assuming that the natural world is kind of animated with spirits, uh, that deep meditative states are often freely talked about as realms rather than they're not talked about as mental experiences. You know, for example, the, the states of high meditative concentration called the dhyanas, they're, they're, they're thought of as realms, places you can go. And you're saying it's because the reason they could make that free movement between categories that we think of as very different, it's like, no, you have a mental state in here or you have the world out there. That free movement was possible because they just didn't make that distinction between stuff that was mind and not mind. Why would they make that distinction? There is absolutely no good reason to make that distinction. It's an entirely arbitrary one. Now, that doesn't mean that a rock is conscious in and of itself. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, what I'm saying is that the inanimate universe as a whole is mental in, in nature. That doesn't mean that subsets of it, parts of it, have their own private inner life. I don't think my mouse has its own private conscious inner life. Why? Because I don't think my mouse even exists as separate from the rest of the inanimate universe. Uh, we carve out the inanimate universe into separate objects out of convenience. It's a purely nominal separation. It's linguistic. It's arbitrary. There is only one thing going on, and that's the inanimate universe as a whole. Uh, and it presents itself as an image full of pixels. And it's us that choose some subsets of those pixels, and you trace a boundary around them, and you say, this is a mouse, that's a, that's a car, that's a building. That's entirely nominal. It's an arbitrary subset of pixels of the one thing going on. So I think there is something it is like to be the inanimate universe as a whole, but there is nothing it's like to be an individual rock in and of itself. You so know that, what I mean? I, I understand what you mean because I've read your book, but I think that's going to take some explaining for people watching. So I'm going to let's see if we can get there because I think this is a good time to talk about how um, reflexive awareness emerges according to, according to your version of idealism. Because I think that will maybe help people understand. Because at the moment it sounds like, okay, so there's all this stuff. Con let's say there's just this one sea of consciousness. Um, if I'm conscious, then presumably everything else is. I mean, that seems a kind of logical inference. So why is that a mistake? So maybe, maybe this is a time you could talk about some of these, you know, the, these metaphors you use in, in uh, your book about materialism, you've got the metaphor of the whirlpools, of the quicksilver whirlpools, of the vibrating membrane, which I found extremely helpful for understanding this. Okay. Um, so yeah, how do, in this, if everything's just one sea of consciousness, why is it that we're different to the mouse? Why is the mouse not conscious? I think the mouse is conscious. Okay. I think every living being has private conscious in their life of its no, own. No, sorry, the computer, the computer mouse, not the... Um, oh, the computer the, mouse. Yeah, Because yeah, the there is no mouse. computer mouse. Okay, okay. So let's see, if we can, let's see if we can get to understanding why that is. Okay. <laughs> so so, so what, how, do, how does consciousness emerge out of this, let's say everything's one sea of mind. How does consciousness emerge from that? Consciousness doesn't emerge. It's okay. that within which everything else emerges. Okay. But consciousness can have different configurations. Okay. Some of those states of mind, think of it that way. Yeah. You don't cease to be a mind because your mind can be in different states. You can be in a distressed state. You can be in a dissociative state. You can be in a, in a, in a happy state. Um, 
there are many states of mind, states of consciousness. Uh, but those states are configurations of consciousness in the same way that a wave is a configuration of the ocean. There is no wave separate from the ocean. You can't lift the wave out of the ocean. The wave is a doing of the ocean, not the thing. Um, mm. There is only the ocean. Um, in the same sense, the configurations of consciousness are just doings of consciousness. There's nothing to them, to that, to them but consciousness. Um, the question is, when you ask whether a rock is conscious, you're asking more than whether the rock is an appearance within consciousness. You're asking whether it has separate conscious inner life of its own. Yeah. Separate being the key word. Okay, Look, separate. You use the word reflexive awareness to distinguish that. Uh, that no, that's yet, that? that's the next, that's the step. Okay, after. that's the next step. Okay, okay next I'll step. slow down. I'll slow down. I'll let you carry on. Um, there is something it is like to be your nervous system as a whole. That's you, right? Right. So you are, as far as the nervous systems are images, you are that image. What you are is represented by that image. There is something it is like to be your nervous system as a whole. But insofar as you can introspect, there is nothing it's like to be one individual neuron in your brain. Mm. Right? There right. is only what it is like to be you as a whole, not what it is like to be a small part of you. That's as far as we part. know. Huh? As far as, far as, as we, we know. know. Exactly. Yeah. You don't have any reason to think that an individual neuron has an inner life of its own separate from yours. And the same applies to the inanimate universe as a whole. We have every reason to think the inanimate universe as a whole has a conscious inner life of its own. There is something it is like to be the inanimate universe as a whole. But there is nothing it's like to be the moon in and of itself for the same reason that there is nothing it's like to be one neuron in your head in and of itself. Mm. Now, the reason why that's the case, it's because there is no moon and there is no neuron. Both are arbitrary carvings out of what is a holistic image. I'll give you an example. Imagine someone paints a piece of canvas with shades of gray. It's an abstract painting. It's just fluid changing shades of gray. There is no discernible object because it's just an abstract fluid painting of shades of gray. Now imagine that somebody would come and say, this pixel plus that pixel and plus this pixel, I will determine, I will pronounce that uh, they constitute an object separate from the rest of the painting. And you go like, that's completely arbitrary. No, it's an arbitrary carving out of that painting and saying that it has these parts. It doesn't have those parts. Now, that's exactly what we do. We carve out the, the inanimate universe into parts that are not there. There is, there, we have no reason to separate the inanimate universe into those parts other than convenience. For instance, what we call a car, it's because we need a word when we want to buy that thing that moves around. But if you think about it, if you define the car as what you need in order to move around, then you could say, well, then the spark plugs are uh, inherent to the car because if I remove them, the car doesn't move, right? So now you, now you follow through that line of thinking. Um, if I remove 
the tires that contact the road, the car doesn't move. So the tires are part of the car. But wait a moment. If there is no road for the tires to contact, the car also doesn't move. Okay, so there is the road. Yeah, but we need the rest of the planet to keep the road in place. Otherwise, the car and the road would just sink into a, a hole. So, yeah, okay, the rest of the planet. Oh, but wait a moment. If there isn't gravity to pull the car against the road, the car wouldn't move. If there isn't air to, to enable combustion and cool the engine, the car doesn't move. And if you go down this line, you need an entire universe to have a car that moves. So it's completely arbitrary to define that boundary and say the car is a proper part of the universe. It isn't. It's a nominal partitioning of the universe. So why is the car not conscious? Because there is no car. The but, car exists in consciousness, <laughs> but the car that, is not conscious. Doesn't, doesn't that, I mean, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate here because I'm actually completely yeah. convinced by your arguments, but doesn't the same argument apply to us? I mean... No. Why are we not just arbitrary bits that we're, we're just cutting off from the rest Be of the world? What's different about us? Because if I prick your arm with a needle, you feel. But if I prick the chair you're sitting on with a needle, you don't feel. If a photon hits your retina, you see. If a photon hits the wall, you don't. Um, there is a very empirical way to define the, the boundaries of you. And, and that's determined on the, on the basis of what you feel and what you don't feel. Mm. Um, if somebody detonates a grenade in Ukraine night, right now, I will not feel it. But if somebody stuffs a grenade <laughs> inside me and detonates it, something is going to happen. So the boundaries of our individual selves are very empirically definable. Mm. But the boundaries of a chair are not. Uh, suppose the chair is conscious. Now I pulled one of the legs of the chair out. Did the leg now become conscious in and of itself, separate from the chair? Yes, okay, now I put the leg back. So do the two conscious in their lives now merge? What happens if I pull the painting from the wall? Did the painting now just become conscious in and of itself? It's completely arbitrary because there are no paintings. There are no chairs. There are no legs. There is only the inanimate universe with living beings in it. Now, living beings are proper parts. We are dissociated from the rest. So let's hit, I mean, I think this would be a good chance to hear people to hear about your, some of your metaphors for explaining how this dissociation happens. Um, um, would you be willing to, to tell people about, about the whirlpools and the, the, loop, the egoic loop? Yeah, okay. So I just Great. made a case for living beings being proper parts of the universe. So now I'm going to make the case for this separation being just illusory and not okay. fundamental. Okay, so great. The separation exists, but it exists as an illusion. An illusion is not nothing. Something has to happen for an illusion to happen. So the illusion of separation does exist, but it is not fundamental. It's just an illusion. Why? For the same reason that a whirlpool is not separate from the stream, we are not separate from the field of subjectivity that constitutes the entire universe. We are whirlpools in, in the flow of universal mentation, the flow of universal conscious inner life, localized eddies in that flow of experiences. And just as you can 
delineate the boundaries of a whirlpool in a stream. You can you can point at it and say there is a whirlpool. It's here and not there in that other place. And you can even you know, determine what, what the boundaries of the whirlpool are. You can clearly identify the whirlpool as a thing. But of course, there is nothing to the whirlpool but the stream. The whirlpool is just a local pattern of behavior of the water in the stream. You cannot take the whirlpool out of the stream and say that's a separate thing from the stream. No, there is nothing to the whirlpool but the stream in the same sense that there is nothing to us but universal consciousness. We are just localized eddies, whirlpools in the stream of experiences in, in universal consciousness. And we think we are separate because that eddy is a dissociative one. Uh, dissociation is a well-known dynamics in mind. It's well-known and recognized in psychiatry. We are just extreme forms of dissociative processes in the mind of nature. And as everything in nature, as every phenomenon in nature, there is something dissociation looks like. And it looks like what we call biology. That's what life is. Life is the image of dissociative processes in the mind of nature. That's what life is. It's what dissociation looks like when observed from the outside. Okay, so you're, what you're saying, what, you're, you're, what you seem to be saying is that anything that looks like life, anything, any of these complex systems which seem to have a kind of autonomy, which grow and develop, some of them... Uh, a strongly seem to have very strong dissociation which means they they're kind of these loops which these loops or these enclosures which are aware of themselves even um some aren't but 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 all of them are a kind of splitting off from the overall medium or of mind um yeah, mind at I, large as you, you call it sometimes in your work I, um, I think we have... all of them all of them are kind of splitting off from it and a kind of forming these sort of enclosed loops is that is that kind of what you're getting at a bit like little whirlpools splitting off from the river yes and i think we have good reason to think that that's the case for every living being and the reason is the following uh, i know i have conscious inner life of my own and i know i can't read your thoughts um, now the appearance of my conscious inner life is my body you happen to have a body entirely analogous to mine so i have good reasons to think that you have private conscious inner life just like me now, how far can we take this reasoning by similarity? There is one thing that unifies all life. Life can be very different. I mean, a crab looks very different uh, uh, from, a, from a person. Uh, a paramecium looks very different from a tree. But all life shares the properties of metabolism. Uh, you know, transcription, protein folding, mitosis, all these things, ATP burning. Mm. This is what unifies all life. So all life is extremely similar when you look close enough, when you look beyond the superficial anatomical differences, deep within at its most intimate level, life is very similar, almost identical at the level of metabolism. Uh, and these are not trivial similarities because metabolism is something very specific, very complex. The fact that it's shared by all life suggests to us that all life is an instance of the same basic natural phenomenon. And if that natural phenomenon is dissociation for us, because I know my inner life is dissociated from the rest, otherwise I would know what's happening in China right now, I would know what's happening in the galaxy of Andromeda, I would know what your audience is thinking of me right now, but I don't, so I am dissociated. And since I am a metabolizing being just like the paramecium, I grant the paramecium 
private conscious in their life like I have. In other words, the paramecium too is a whirlpool, a dissociated whirlpool in the conscious stream uh, of nature. But things that do not metabolize, I do not think we have any reason to attribute conscious in their life to them. We, we just don't have any reason to make that inference. And we don't even have a reason to consider them proper parts of the universe, let alone having private conscious in their lives. Mm. And I, I, it seems like you're saying that the reason we should conceive of living beings as proper parts of the universe is because they seem to have qualities that other things don't have, um, they, qualities they, of, of, of subjectivity, effectively, of one kind or another. Well, beings that we can deduce subjectivity by looking at their behavior have these properties like my cat i'm absolutely sure my cat has a consciousness in their life of his own yeah. uh, i see that in his behavior because i know that when i express behavior similar to his i do that because i'm expressing my consciousness in their life so i think he does it for the same reason but beyond that even organisms for which we do not get that impression like a tree a tree is not moving around not crying uh, why is a tree conscious? No, because if you look close enough, the tree too is metabolizing. And that similarity between a tree and us is non-trivial. Hmm. It's a very, very complex, non-trivial, sophisticated similarity. So I think a tree too has a conscious in their life of its own, but I don't see any reason to drag this line of inference any, any further than metabolism. To say that a rock is conscious in and of itself, I don't think that is the case. And look, this is what people have always understood nature to be. Life yeah. is special in that sense. That's so interesting because metabolism is such a specific process, and that's as far as where we can legitimately take argument from from similarity, argument for analogy. Okay, that's very clear, and they never. I'll be able to answer that question now. Someone in a class once asked me, "Why aren't rocks conscious?" And uh, I wasn't able. There are to no rocks. <laughs> I wasn't able to cut with nearly as good an answer as that. Um, so uh, I must remember what the question I was going to ask next. It was, so it was to do with, you know, let's say, so following this idea that we're kind of vortexes, vortices in a whirlpool, we've kind of got split off from the main medium of mind, the main kind of ocean of mind or the river of mind. We seem to be able to make decisions about what we do with our minds. We can have intentions. We can, to a certain extent, change what's happening in our own minds. We can kind of work directly on the mind. Uh, that's what meditation does. We can kind of work, work directly on changing our own minds. And what we pay attention to really affects. If you spend loads of time watching horrible, violent films, your mind will become more full of violent images and so on. So what stops us just breaking out of the whirlpool completely? Let's, you know, it seems like it's not that great being stuck in the whirlpool. We've kind of got this limited perspective. We're kind of closed off. I don't know what's happening in Ukraine and neither do you uh, right now. Um, wouldn't it be great if we could expand beyond the whirlpool, expand beyond this little limited self? Why yeah. can't we just do that? Of course you can. You can do that anytime you want. Kill yourself and it's done. But it's going to happen anyway. So why kill yourself now? You might as well just stay in the ride for as long as it lasts and see if you learn a thing or two from it. Because it's going to happen. Whether you want it or not, there is no reason to hurry up. But presumably if you killed yourself, that wouldn't be quite the same as expanding beyond the whirlpool because the whirlpool would dissolve. And so your ability to 
be aware ah. of what was going on would dissolve as well. Ah, you don't want to get rid of the whirlpool. You want a bigger whirlpool. That's what okay. you want. Okay, okay. Maybe that's my question. <laughs> Why can't we make the whirlpool bigger? What's stopping us making the whirlpool bigger or somehow connecting the whirlpools with the whole of the river? Um, part of it is just biological. Um, the whirlpool, for it to sustain itself, needs to function within certain boundary conditions. The same happens in a real whirlpool in a stream. If it grows too big, it dissolves. It cannot maintain its structural and dynamical integrity. Um, so nature, because it is whatever it is and not something else, it has certain regularities that we call the laws of nature. And those laws imply that uh, the whirlpools cannot be sustained beyond a certain size. It's very difficult to maintain um, um, a cap on our internal entropy um, if, if we grow too big. You know, the dinosaurs <laughs> grew very big in body, but not in mentation. Um, so we are what we are because that's what could evolve in this particular planetary uh, ecosystem. It doesn't seem to be sustainable in nature. Um, for us to have a mind much broader in scope than the one we happen to have. Um, that's too bad. Now, part of it is also self-inflicted. It's inflicted by culture and, and um, unhelpful uh, patterns of thinking that uh, have a lot to do with um, Patterns of addiction. We think we are addicted to drugs only. We are addicted to everything. We are addicted to certain patterns of reasoning, patterns of thinking, patterns of feeling. Uh, our whole life is governed by forms of addiction uh, in the West. And we make ourselves smaller than we can be because of those patterns of addiction, those attempts to defend and protect the ego from disappointment, from trauma, from danger, from all kinds of things. Uh, and, and attempt to soothe the ego as well, because life is hard and it's very hard to take it. And we try to soothe ourselves through distraction and other addictive patterns. So that is self-inflicted. And we can reduce that through meditation, through psychological discipline, uh, through psychological integration. So for some people, it's the opposite that you need. You don't need discipline. What you, what you need is precisely the opposite. What you need is to just let go. Let go, let nature be through you instead of trying to be you. Um, so that we can influence, but I think there are some very hard limits. You can go just as far as a certain point. And beyond that, if you want to go further, you have to dissolve the whirlpool. And yeah, you kill yourself. I don't think that's a good idea because it's going to happen anyway. <laughs> So why are you, why would anybody be in a hurry? Might as well, now if you don't understand yet what's going on, you might as well just stay alive a little longer because maybe you will and death's coming anyway. But yes, you can dissolve the whirlpool anytime you want. Whirlpools are very fragile. You know, in a stream, you stick your finger in one, it, poof, it dissolves, it disappears. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very fragile dynamic equilibrium that is required there. You put a bullet in your head, it's over. The whirlpool will dissolve. So yeah, no, no. You can do that. <laughs> I so wouldn't. <laughs> so maybe you might guess already. I've got a kind of vested interest in this this question because, you know, Buddhists think you know the the Buddhists think that the Buddha was able to kind of, as it were, have both at once to completely dissolve uh, the limits of consciousness and open to everything that is, whilst at the same time kind of 
keeping uh, reflexive awareness, keeping the whirlpool of awareness going. Um, and I guess I was thinking about, I don't know if I'm going to be able to ex even explain one of the really exciting things about your work, one of the challenges in this interview is it's very intricate. You create very intricate layered metaphors, which allow for a lot of precision in articulating these ideas. I think, you know, these ideas can sound very vague in general. I think you're really good at articulating them precisely. But I'm going to see if I can explain my question in a way that will make sense given what people have heard so far. Um, so one of the ways you, you explain how... Um, how egos are individuated from the whole medium of mind is that they form these kind of looped membranes, looped membranes that are, are vibrating um, in sympathy with the vibrations across the larger membrane of consciousness um, that, that you explain consciousness. This is another metaphor you use as, as a kind of series of vibrations across a multi-dimensional membrane. That sounds very complicated, but a, a really simple way maybe of explaining it. I hope it's okay. I'm trying to explain your ideas. Sure. Please just tell me if I'm getting it. I, really I know well. what you mean. <laughs> you know, so there's, it's like you have a kind of, an ego is a kind of loop, which is vibrating and the vibrations are triggering off other vibrations within the loop. And that's why we have this kind of, you could say that's why we have this sense of a closed me. Because yeah. mainly what we're getting is reflected vibrations from our own little loop of mind. Yeah. So and this is. A, yeah. Sorry. Go on. This is above and beyond the fundamental level of dissociation. Yeah. In other words, it's above and beyond the fact that I don't know what's happening in China right now. Uh, the latter is biologically imposed on me, uh, yeah. but we go beyond that. We dissociate ourselves even more in a, in an almost voluntary way. We make ourselves smaller than the boundaries of the dissociation itself. And the reason we do this is the following. Humans, and perhaps some higher animals, like pachyderms or cetaceans, maybe they too can have some degree of that. But humans, for sure, have the ability that uh, psychologists call metacognition. We can re-represent our own experiences internally and tell ourselves, I am having that experience. And for, for us to be able to tell ourselves what we are experiencing, we need, one, to have the experience. But then, two, in addition to one, we need to know that we have the experience. And the knowing of the experience is itself another experience that mirrors the first. Uh, it's technically called a re-representation of our own internal representations. Uh, metacognition is the way it's uh, referred to in psychology. And you can do this in multiple levels because after you know that you are experiencing, you can know that you know that you are experiencing. And you can know that you know that you know that you are experiencing many levels. You can think of it as two mirrors facing each other, an infinite mirror in which they reflect each other's reflection and again and again and again ad infinitum. Uh, so we have the ability to do that. Now, notice that this is the birth of the ego. The ego is the inner narrative of the self. This ability to re-represent or internally, internally reflect our own experiences is the birth of that. It's what enables that. Let me give you an example that you can really feel in the core of your being. If you have a bellyache, suppose you're hungry and you feel that in your stomach. I am hungry. 
Me too. <laughs> and I'm feeling that in my stomach right now as well. Um, and then we tell ourselves, oh, I am hungry. That statement we make to ourselves, I am hungry, I need to go eat. That's uh, what is enabled by this internal reflection, this internal re-representation. Because without it, the statement would be, I am hunger. You see what I mean? The reason you say I have hunger as opposed to I am hunger is that you are internally re-representing the experience of hunger in a higher level of cognition. So from that higher level, you observe your hunger and you say, I have hunger. But if there is only the hunger, then, then there is no I that has the hunger. There is only hunger. Mm. You are the hunger. Mm. Now, uh, I am sure the, param the paramecium is his hunger. The paramecium doesn't make a distinction between the hunger and the subject that experiences the hunger. We do because we can reflect. Mm. We, we can re-represent our mental states. And that is the birth of the individual I. Mm. I have hunger. As opposed to, I am the hunger, I am the sunshine, I am the wind, I am the planet, I am the stars, I am the supernovae. No, no, no. Now, I am the one observing the stars and the supernovae. I am the one experiencing the hunger. And, and the shit show begins right there. And how, it's the how birth does... of the subject that experiences the world as opposed to just being the world. Dissociated, as the case may be. And, and how does that map on to the whirlpool metaphor? Yeah, I try to use this visual metaphor in the book. Uh, if the whirlpool is turning very fast, the center of the whirlpool sinks into the water like a cone. Um, and if you imagine that cone as having uh, reflective surfaces like a mirror, that's where self-reflection begins, that internal reflection in an infinite mirror of the individual eye. I am the one experiencing the hunger. I am the one who knows that he's experiencing the hunger. I am the one who knows that he knows that he's experiencing the hunger. Suddenly, yeah. your mental landscape becomes dominated by the I. Mm. I this, I that, I this. And the rest of the universe disappears. It's only the I, the individual I, or the me, as some people prefer to call it, the yeah. me. Not the I of the subjectivity, my cat has an eye in the sense that experience entails a subject who experiences. You cannot have an experience without a subject. So that's the, that's the primordial, undifferentiated eye. It's not the eye of the ego. It's the eye of what Schopenhauer described as the eye that looks out through every creature. And he plays with the words uh, in English, at least uh, in the original German, and this doesn't work. Um, but in the English translation, there is this nice uh, um, amb ambiguity in the way the words are pronounced. So the eye, the one eye of nature that looks out through the eyes of every creature, that's fundamental. It does not, it's not the ego, it's the subject, the one subject of nature. But the eye of the ego is... Uh, that thing that arises from hi hierarchies of self-reflection. 
in which we say, I am the one who knows that I'm hungry. Oh my God, to be hungry is not fine. I am suffering because I'm hungry. I need to stop the hunger. And, and we do this in other things. You know, like I regret the past. I am the one that regrets the past. I cannot live with the past, but I cannot change the past. So what do I have to do? And, blah, and you're lost. Yeah, you're yeah. lost in that, in that web of self-reflection in which the eye dominates from the rest of nature. And then your world becomes very tiny, very, very, very small, uh, because it's dominated by this abstract eye that is created by your ability to reflect. So it seems like, you know, I think that's a really vivid metaphor. I'm not going to try and kind of reframe it, but I, I wonder, the question I wanted to get at, which I don't, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get to or ask, because it, maybe it's, 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 too, it's another metaphorical layer on top of this, but it, something you, you seem to suggest in your book about materialism is that it's only possible for us to make a certain amount of changes to this situation. Maybe, maybe we can reduce some of that endless mirroring of reflectivity so we're not quite caught up in our own nonsense so much. We're not living in such a tiny little tube. Um, but there's a, there's a limit to how much we can change that structure. And you, in your section on origamis of consciousness, I can't exactly remember what it's called, you, you talk about you know, the possibility that the... That little funnel is only one possible structure for consciousness. Um, but we've kind of got the one we've got. And I guess my question, my question to Buddhists, which is all about changing the structure of consciousness. Um, why is there a limit to how much we can change? Is How do you know there's a limit to how much you can change the structure of consciousness? Well, there is no limit. But if you want to be alive, then the limit is determined by the configuration of consciousness, whose appearance is what we call life. If okay. you want to change beyond that, of course you can. But that means you are no longer alive. You are conscious in some other form that doesn't have the appearance of life and, and metabolism. Okay. Okay. And so in a way that really fits with things that are, you know, in various religious traditions. You know, I think of Rumi's idea that you should die before you die. Um, or in, in the Buddhist tradition, the Buddha wasn't really liberated until after death. Is it that... You know, maybe there's only so far we can transform ourselves given our physical parameters. That might be quite a long way. It might be further than we think, um, but there's a limit to that. And if we want to transform consciousness more, it has to go, we have to go beyond the physical body completely. Yeah, I don't think there is a limit, uh, but life is a certain state of consciousness. If you want to change that, then you're no longer alive. So mm -hmm. it, even life is not a limit. You know, we can pull the plug anytime we want. I don't think it's a good idea, but because it will happen anyway. Uh, but it will happen eventually as well. So there, there is no limit. But if you want to change your state of consciousness while being alive, then of course there is a limit. Be be Imposed by yourself, the moment you say, I want to do that while staying alive, well, then you are decreeing what the limit is. You're making that choice, mm. which is an entirely valid choice. It's a choice I made. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I have a physical condition that drives many people to suicide. And I've thought of suicide twice. Mm. But I made now, I make every day the conscious choice that I will not kill myself. Mm. Because eventually it will happen. It's a physical condition that drives you nuts, but doesn't kill you. So I have a normal life expectancy. Uh, but in the Netherlands, it's a condition that uh, is legally considered valid for you to have assisted suicide. Mm. 
Gosh. It's, it's an extreme form of tinnitus. It's uh, a ringing in the ears that's very loud and it's there day and night and you can't escape from it. And it's, it's, it's a form of torture that uh, the body does. But um, I can change the state of consciousness that induces tinnitus mm. anytime. And I know how to do that in about five minutes without any pain. Mm. But I choose not to do that because it's going to happen anyway mm. <laughs> at some point. Um, so I choose to be in this state of consciousness. But even within the state of consciousness we call life, there is a lot of room for maneuver, including states in which you are still alive, but your suffering is reduced dramatically. Mm -hmm. And that happens when you stop fighting with yourself. That's one big thing. Another big thing is to understand what the nature of the ego is, because if you really understand it, you can let go of it with relative ease. Look, I was saying earlier, if you're not self-reflective, then you are not the one having hunger. You are the hunger. By the same token, the exactly same token, you are the world you see around you. Mm. You are not the one seeing the world. You are not the one having the hunger. You are the hunger. You are the world. Mm. Now, the world you see is determined by a certain dissociative process. That's why you perceive the world as opposed to being the world. But even in perceiving the world in a dissociated state, you can still be that perception instead of the one who experiences that perception. You see? So there is a sort of way to trace back our evolutionary steps and going back to that primary dissociated consciousness that is the hunger and is the world. Because if you are the world, you are no longer in a claustrophobic place. Mm. Um, there is a negative to this as well. If you are the world, you are the Ukrainians. And I am the Ukrainians. And it's not nice. I have a lot of difficulty with it. And it's just that I don't know how to go back to that state where I used to not be the Ukrainians. I don't know how to get back there. Um, but I would if I could. I have no romanticism about this stuff. I'm very guess, pragmatic about it. I guess the idea would be to be able to move between both. You know, That would be great. I don't know how to do that. Yeah, yeah. It would be great, wouldn't it? But, but if you can understand that the I is a creation, is a story you are telling yourself, a lot of your suffering will go away. Mm. Regret goes away. Regret is a, what you did that you regret is a natural phenomenon, just like a volcano that erupts or a storm that comes, lightning that strikes. It's just stuff that happens. It's absurd to regret. And anxiety is absurd. Because whatever happens in the future and that you're afraid of is just like a storm that happens, a volcano that erupts. It's shit that happens in nature. And, and it's not bad and it's not good. It just happens. So you don't need to obsess about it either way. So a that's, lot of suffering goes away. That's so interesting because I think, oh, I've, oh no, my camera's just, oh, it's okay, it's back. I think, I think something that, you know, my response to that as a Buddhist is think, oh no, regret can be useful sometimes. It's like regret is telling us something about our existential situation. It's telling us maybe that this is going back to maybe your idea about we're, we're being given messages to interpret. It's telling me that maybe I was, maybe I was clinging at that point. Maybe I was holding on too tight 
And uh, usually when I act badly or I do something I regret, it's because I'm, oh no, my video. Okay. Uh, of course you're right. But what I mean is to dwell in regret, which mm. is what we do. And it's what leads to suffering is to dwell in the regret. Um, um, when I got this tinnitus much worse than it used to be. Um, are you there? Can you hear me? I can hear you. My video is... Okay, oh, okay. So my tinnitus became uh, much worse because I made, I did something very stupid. I had my alarm system in my home changed, uh, but one of the sirens was left behind by the guy who came here to install and remove the old one. And I figured I will remove that one myself. And I knew that those things have safety mechanisms. If you pull them from the wall, um, they, they, they go off and they are extremely loud. They are ear piercing. And I knew that. And yet in the spur of the moment, I just went to the wall and I yanked it out and it went off. And it took me like 10 seconds to pull out the batteries. And by that time, my ears uh, were damaged and I had uh, horrendous tinnitus. I spent a good year regretting that tremendously and dwelling that regret. I ruined my life for no reason, for something stupid, like 10 seconds that did not need to be and now ruined the next 45 years of my life. I dwelled in that for a long time until I realized that that thing and my tinnitus was precisely what weakened me, made me vulnerable to a point whereas where I became open to doing things that I otherwise otherwise wouldn't be open to. I quit my job to be the uh, executive director of a foundation, uh, stuff that I wouldn't have done before. I wouldn't have voluntarily taken a salary cut of 50% minus bonus and future prospects uh, and the safety net of a company where everybody knew me and I didn't need to prove myself. I became so fragile because of tinnitus that I figured I don't have anything else to lose. I was ready to put an end to my life last week. So what do I have to lose? I was ready to lose everything. So what is this fear of losing? So, and, and having done that, it's been two years since, um, I realize now that what I'm doing now is what nature wants to, to do through me. And it took a tremendous fear, weakening of my ego for me to be willing to allow nature to flow through me according to its plan and not my ego's plan. And, and, and once you see that, you start wondering what else you regret about your past, that if you hadn't done it or if it hadn't happened to you, you wouldn't be in the places where you would give your life to be uh, uh, to, to be back in, uh, if you were not in that place today. Um, so yeah, I, I, it's not dwelling in regret, learning from the past. Of course you have, we have to learn from it. I think that's a really great answer to one of the questions I wanted to begin to close with, which is, um, you know, what, why why would becoming an idealist changing to an idealist worldview benefit you and you know it's clear none of these perspectives are available if you think that all there is is mind in here and then 
materiality. I mean, I think that that seems clear to me. I mean, do you have anything else to say about that to people who think, okay, I'm, I'm kind of sold on this idea. Maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe my materialist assumptions aren't right. <laughs> um, what would be in it for me? My commitment to, is to, to truth. Change views. Even if the truth is horrible. Um, idealism is not horrible, but it requires... Mm. It demands that we become adults. We live in, in an adolescent society. Our way to deal with our suffering is to stay adolescent for as long as possible. Stay playing the same games, the same distractions, uh, playing back the same self-assuring narratives uh, in the face of all evidence to the contrary. So idealism, it, it has improved my life in the sense that it has brought meaning back to every single aspect of my life. It has brought that, that, that extra dimension of mystery and meaning back to everything. But uh, I'm not romantic about it because it has brought a whole lot of bad things <laughs> as well. Um, anxiety about the experiential state after death. Uh, the Buddhists would call it the bardos and Buddhist literature is very clear that the bardos are not fun. Um, there is... Yeah, yeah, you you better brace for impact. You have to be well it's not like you're landing on a cloud playing an harp <laughs> in the glory of God. Yeah. Um, so that anxiety has returned. Um, empathy is it cuts both ways. Um, actually, it doesn't. Empathy only makes you suffer more uh, because you empathize with everything and everybody that is suffering. And and if I could turn that tap off again, I would turn it in a blink, uh, but I can't. I have become, idealism has become so internalized in me. Mm -hmm. It has become such a lived experience as opposed to just a conceptual narrative in my head. It has become so obvious, so evident, so in my face that I, it has become impossible for me to turn off the tap of empathy. And, and, and excuse my English, but that's a bitch. That tap... If I could, man, I would turn off that tap in a blink. I, I have no romanticism about this stuff, perhaps because I didn't come at it from a spiritual perspective. I came at it from a hard-nosed, rational perspective, and I got into a territory that I didn't expect. I landed in a place I was not expecting I would land. I, I didn't bargain for this. I didn't ask for this. I was not a seeker. I was not trying to land where I landed. And I don't like it. <laughs> if, uh, if, uh, know what I mean? Um, so I'm not romantic about it at all. If you really want to buy into this and, and see it, not only understand it, but see it, become acquainted with the truth of it, not only become intellectually convinced of it, because that's a very different thing. It's the first step. You need to become intellectually open to it in order to allow the rest to happen because the intellect is the bouncer of the heart. Uh, but after you buy into it intellectually, it's a slippery slope. Be careful. Uh, you may land in a place you didn't want to. I didn't want, want to land where I am right now. And I don't know how to go back. Uh, I don't know how to climb that, that, that slippery slope <laughs> again <laughs> out of this. And there are times I love where I am. <laughs> Because I don't suffer from a meaningless existence anymore. 
Not at all. Every day is meaningful. I wake up every day open to what nature wants to do through me in full certainty. It's not even certainty because certainty looks like something you need to engender. In full knowledge that whatever happens, it is pregnant with meaning. Every single second of my existence is pregnant with meaning. So I am very thankful for that. I do not suffer from nihilism. I do not suffer from depression. The reason I once thought of killing myself was because of tremendous suffering, not because I thought life was meaningless. And, and I am thankful to that, but I'm not thankful for everything else that came with it and which I hadn't bargained for and which is not fun to have in the kind of world where we live today, especially now with the Ukraine story, which has and continues to unsettle me um, tremendously. Uh, and I find myself now in the situation of an addict. I, I, I try to find something to distract me because otherwise I just, I just sink into that flow of despair and darkness, that bottomless pit of evil that... I didn't bargain for this man. I didn't want to be here. <laughs> the, um, there's a saying in, in the Buddhist tradition when it comes to, to practicing Buddhism, it's better not if, to if start. If that's the destination, if start, it's better not yeah, to if start. that's the destination, and, uh, think three times like before. Like, it's yeah, like, you uh, may succeed. <laughs> that's the greatest yeah, danger. Think it very carefully. Think about But I guess, I mean, it, it's making me think, I mean, we should stop, we should probably stop in a minute, but I just, it's making me think, you know, one of the, the way the arc of Buddhist practice goes is you spend a lot of time to start with building up emotional positivity and emotional resilience. You build it up and you build it up. You do these loving kindness meditations. You spend time, you basically kind of create this big glow of emotional warmth. And then you let, let the gates of consciousness open. You do it that way around because it's hard to cope with. Yeah, but what comes. look, I, I don't want to and discourage I, anybody like because I, I have a friend, Rupert Spira, um, and he is the living right. embodiment of the next steps in this process. Uh, it doesn't end where I am, I hope, and I believe that because I see it in him. Uh, you can go further and you get to a place where, although all of this is streaming through you, it, it doesn't affect you that much anymore. I, I, I don't know how to describe it because I'm not there, but Rupert is the embodiment of conscious presence yeah. in peace. He, he, he just exudes peace. Then just being around him, it sort of, you know, it rubs off on you. Um, so it, there, there's probably a place beyond where I am. I'm by no means enlightened. I have a very hardened head. I'm, I'm, I'm not spiritual material by any stretch of the imagination. But I, I found myself landing in a place that, uh, that it seems to be related to what spiritual people describe is a place where they can be. And based on this experience, I would say, if this is representative of the spiritual journey, what I would say is think a lot carefully, uh, very carefully about this because you may succeed.
That's maybe a really good place to stop. I, I don't completely believe that you're not good spiritual material from reading some of your books and the experiences you've had. I think they took, you know, a few things a bit like that have happened to me, but it took But for me, they are not they are not abiding. Sounds like you got there pretty quickly. There are places I've been to, but I didn't bring them back with me. It's not Mm. where I where I live. Mm. Yeah, Mm. where you live, I see. Yeah. Anyway, maybe that's for another time. Hope there'll be another time. I really, really enjoyed talking to you. I had lots of questions that I I couldn't ask. but I just want to give you a huge, huge thank you from, from us at Croydon Buddhist Center, from the Nature of Mind project. We're going to be running, um, as part of the Nature of Mind project, we're going to be running a seminar um, focusing on Bernardo's work on the 25th of March at 7 p.m. That's going to be online via Zoom. That'll be with me, and where we'll be talking about some of the ideas Bernardo's been talking about and some of his books I really hope you'll join us because it's it's been an incredibly exciting intellectual adventure for me coming getting to know your work. So I, I hope that others will join that adventure too, if you if you <laughs> really want to, because it's like Bernardo was saying, maybe there's danger there. Maybe it's maybe it's a risk. So think really carefully. And if you're willing to take the plunge, then then join us on the twenty fifth. Be my pleasure. March. And uh, yes, yeah, a me. huge, huge thank you again, Bernardo. Take care. Really Bye now. To meet you.